And that just really shocked me because frankly speaking, nobody had ever said anything like that to me before. But it was actually very illuminating to me. I think, you know, at first I was angry. Obviously, I thought that was an inappropriate comment. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Let me say right up front, I didn't make the comment that made Elizabeth Yin angry. And we'll get to what did coming up a little later in the podcast. The reason I want you to meet Elizabeth, a partner in Hustle Fund, is she's in the middle of raising a new fund. I've come to realize we talk a lot on this podcast about where venture capital money goes, but not where the millions come from. Where does the money in venture capital start? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, and that was something actually I didn't know before I started Hustle Fund. I don't know it now. <laughs> and so really, actually, um, they, they come from a lot of sources. But I think the short answer is from rich people and rich organizations. And it's just a matter of navigating what is it that each individual or organization wants. Elizabeth breaks it down into three categories. Institutional investors like Stanford or the Illinois State Teacher Retirement System. Angel investors, the super rich like Peter Thiel looking for a place to put their money. And what investors call family offices, wealthy individuals who hire a staff to invest their money. Now, how do you pitch these people? How do you <laughs> get them on the phone or knock on the door and say, hey, it's me, Elizabeth, and I'd like $10 million? So I think in terms of finding people, that, that's very challenging. And our approach actually was a very grassroots approach. So we did two things. One, we started with our closest network. And my business partner... Eric Bond, and later we added Shein Co. and I. We, you know, we've been in Silicon Valley for a long time, so we we've known a lot of entrepreneurs and investors, and we started there. And we we basically went to everybody and told them what we are up to and how we see our fund as differentiated. And we asked all of them if they wanted to invest as a start. But I think more importantly, whether or not they could invest or wanted to invest, we asked each person we met for one to two introductions 
just like, can you think of one specific name of somebody who may be interested? And it, it didn't even have to matter if that person knew that one person. We just wanted a lead. And then from there, we worked on getting an introduction to that one person. So you can imagine a small group of people all of a sudden, especially if they're giving out two names, can start to expand. And that and that's how we grew out our network and eventually started going into circles of people we didn't know at all. And then the second thing that we did was we had events. So we would invite, again, the same group of people to events, but ask them to invite other people. And that was a much softer sell because at the events, it would be, you know, like a networking or mingling event. But we would, of course, also have a, a call to action like, hey, if you're interested in talking with us about our fund, we would love to. So that, that was a lot easier, I think, for people to get behind instead of, you know, saying to their friend, hey, I, you know, this VC wants to pitch you. And I've seen you busted your ass because I saw the spreadsheet you put together keeping track of every meeting you've had. Yes. And you really worked hard. Well, we're hustle fund. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for, you know, I counted all the meetings on my Google calendar. And for me, I, I did something uh, well over 300 meetings during the course of about nine months. And my business partner, Eric, did about the same. So in total, you can say about 700 meetings between the two of us. And that included both first and second meetings. You know, I think with individuals, we could close them pretty quickly. It was usually just one meeting. And but, but with some of these other folks, like corporates, you may need to meet a number of people or family offices that are, are running with the team. It may take several meetings. This is a really tough business. But it's still got to be a little scary to have a bank account with other people's money in it that you're responsible for that you could someday have to call them on the phone and say, well, that didn't work out. I mean, it is. It is. And I think we don't we don't take this very lightly at all. In fact, actually, you know, most of our investors in our fund one are people we know from before and they trust us, their friends, their family. This is their, you know, potentially their kids college money. And, and it's also our own money. So, we you know, we have skin in the game as well. Almost every VC fund, I think the, the partners have skin in the game, like they have contributed a fair bit of the money themselves. And so actually, when you're talking about the bigger funds, like billion dollar funds, you know, it's very common, I think, you know, if I were to throw numbers around for uh, general partners to put in, you know, one to 5% of the fund. So when you're talking about a billion dollar fund, that's actually a lot of money that the general partners are putting in themselves. And, uh, but it's funny, nobody really talks about that. When I talk with founders, actually, I, I don't ever, I have never thought to mention that, you know, some of this is my own money. So we don't take it lightly, but I think it was really important for us to be upfront about it because, you know, if things didn't go to plan, we didn't want people to be caught by surprise. And so this has to be a chunk of money that people are willing to potentially lose. Obviously, nobody wants to, but... Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
um, you know, I think the, the flip side, though, is we do feel very confident in our model since we've been investing for the last few years and, you know, have some early track record, even if not, um, you know, a whole lot of liquid returns. What is your, your financial model for investing? I've, I would imagine people with hustle. I'm guessing that's where the title comes <laughs> from. Yeah, so our general thesis is actually pretty simple and very different, I think, for many VC funds. So one of the things that I noticed from doing early stage investing in, over the last few years is that almost every early stage investor invests based on pitches. You know, like people, you have a meeting with somebody, they pitch their idea, maybe you bring them back a few times. But one of the interesting observations that I had while running the 500 Startups Accelerator was that I learned a lot more when I saw people work. And actually, a much better indicator of success is uh, velocity of execution. Can you, you know, if you can you create your own goal and hit it next week? Can you create another goal and hit it next week? And and how quickly can you move the needle? And so, even though the initial traction may be small, actually, that's a very good indicator of a, a strong entrepreneur. And so, that is what we are looking for when we invest. We write a small check up front. And we work very closely with companies for a few weeks. And then, you know, if we, if we see that velocity of execution, um, we pour in more money after that. So most of our money is actually deployed based on execution. Just going to check my notes here. You wrote, my mission for the next 20 to 30 years is to change how we fund startups in Silicon Valley. That's a long period of time. Uh, also, what are you trying to change? I think, you know, I, one of the things I've noticed is in seeing so many different entrepreneurs that actually the best entrepreneurs, they don't fit a particular demographic. They don't come from a particular place or necesarily have gone to a particular school. What What is common, again, is this this execution at speed. And so... We want to change the way the ecosystem thinks about investing, and that is going to take 20 to 30 years. That idea that founders come from a particular demographic or a particular school is, of course, a big problem in Silicon Valley. And you can call it prejudice. You wouldn't be wrong. But it's a problem that can trip up even the most progressive, forward-thinking people. Psychologists call this pattern matching. The pattern matching is actually not a good indicator of good founders, and that's why we have our model, um, because founders who can execute with speed actually look like all kinds of people. So when I was pitching my own startup many years ago to an investor, during that meeting, at the end of the meeting, I asked him, so what do you think, trying to close him? And he said, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing and call you a meek Asian woman, but I question how you'll lead a company of 100 people. And that just really shocked me because, frankly speaking, nobody had ever said anything like that to me before. But it was actually very illuminating to me. I think, you know, at first I was uh, angry. Obviously, I thought that was an inappropriate comment. But then later, you know, in that week I was thinking about it, actually, in some sense, he gave me a gift. He gave me a gift into the mind of maybe what many other people were thinking. And I think pattern matching is a real problem because if you don't fit a certain demographic in this area, it's, it actually is really hard to raise money, even if you are a great entrepreneur. And I've even seen the deal memos of some other firms where they'll write reasons for passing. It's like, does not seem charismatic enough to lead a team of people. Like that is a reason, even if, even if the traction is excellent. And 
you know, on some level, I think that bothers me because I think you can point to plenty of leaders who have billion dollar businesses who were very introverted and actually not not particularly charismatic. Uh, but I think that, you know, again, this pattern matching is a problem because it's it's actually not correct. You've written you offer both free fundraising advice. Give me some both free fundraising advice. <laughs> I, I think I like to address the elephant in the room. So I think that, uh, you know, VCs going through the startup fundraising process as a startup was just very confusing to me when I was a founder. And there were some, so many things I didn't know. So, for example, when a VC asks you as a founder, do you have a lead? That's actually a pretty loaded question. And I think the common response for a new founder is, oh, no, we don't have a lead. And then the investor will say, well, you know, come back when you have a lead. And then you're kind of stuck in this trap with everybody telling you that. And you're, you're, you're trying to find a lead and everyone seemingly is supportive, but they're not actually. What they're actually saying is they're not interested right now. Now, they could become interested, but you have to essentially force their hand. And I think that's something that, that people don't understand, that there are all these, there's weird jargon and, 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 and code, ways. Coded messages. Coded and messages and ways that people play the game. And you, ha you really do have to FOMO VCs in order to raise money, even if they are interested. When you think about it, actually, it is much better for an investor to wait for more information than to commit today, right? You should always wait. If that opportunity is available five months from now at the same price, you should always wait. Really, it comes down to creating FOMO around things that you, you actually do have. So you may not have money, but you can have something like packed meetings. Like you can have a packed schedule. I, you know, I, I don't know when I'm closing, but I've got 20 meetings this week and I'm starting to go into second meetings with other VCs on Monday. And that itself, it's a fact, and VCs can interpret for themselves, wow, this is going fast, I should really move. Or if they're really not interested, then self-select out, which again, kind of goes back to my point around qualifying investors. And then the last piece is just following up. Like there were some investors for our fund one whom we thought were interested based on our qualification of the first meeting, it went well, but then they just went completely MIA. And the reality is that people get busy. And so even if they're interested, they're just busy. So I think, you know, one of our one of our bigger LPs and actually more engaged LPs, um, we sent him, I think, about 13 emails that received no response. And so, what, you know, when you're in the, the moment sending your seventh email, you're thinking like this is not going anywhere, even though we had a good meeting. But you just never know. So I think persistence, I think, is the last piece that's really important. Elizabeth Yin telling us about raising her first fund as she heads out to raise her second. Next week on Sand Hill Road, Andreessen Horowitz's Scott Kapoor, who literally writes the book on venture capital. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.